the main distinction between just AI and robots, in my perspective, is that robots are embodied. They have a body, an actual physical body that occupies space, that breaks, and that exists where we are under the same laws of gravity. (laughs) Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. So welcome back to our Double Espresso episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. And this is the second part of our interview with Patricia Alves Oliveira. Now, in this episode, we're going to be getting a little bit more into the weeds of robotics and how robotics and future technologies might support creativity in young children. So, Patricia, can you tell us how you came up with this idea of merging robots and creativity together? Yes. So robots, when we hear that word, we kind of think of functional tasks, right? They they do have the potential to be very effective in operations that require repetition or even standardization. And I always like to question the status quo of things and to kind of perform research that leaves us feeling a little bit uncomfortable. So one of the things I was asking myself at the time of my PhD was really, what more can robots do for us? And so I chose to focus on one of the most unique and important qualities of being human, which is to be creative. And I started questioning how can robots influence human creativity? I want to note that I was never interested in creating robots that are creative themselves, but rather to make robots as tools that we can use that would influence our creativity. Before we get too much into the weeds, we've spoken a lot around artificial intelligence in the past. And this is kind of the first time we've really spoke about robotics. So I understand there's a relationship artificial intelligence is is within the type of robotic work that we're talking about, but could you separate robotics and artificial intelligence for our listeners? So I would say that definitely AI is part of robotics. We could say it's the brain of a robot. It's what makes the robot do what it does. And the main distinction between just AI and robots, in my perspective, is that robots are embodied. They have a body, an actual physical body that occupies space that breaks and that exists where we are under the same laws of gravity. (laughs) And so that means a lot because that means the robot can change the world around them. But it also means a lot for how we interact with it compared to an AI that could exist in a computer as a chatbot because This embodiment that robots have, their physical presence in the world, uh, the fact that we can touch them or we can be touched by them physically in our skin, it just influences the way we connect with them. So there are a lot of studies that are 
interested in disambiguating this and understanding if people retain more information when they talk with a robot instead of an AI. And so there is a lot of influence in our social brain when we interact with a robot compared to when we interact with something that is virtual but still has AI and could even be saying exactly the same thing as the robot is saying. But our social brain, which is kind of like this part of us that is activated when we interact with each other, gets super, super strong when we interact with robots. So I was going through your website before this interview, and I came across something you worked on called YOLO, which made me smile from ear to ear. So can you explain to our listeners YOLO? And I will put a link to this video inside of our notes. YOLO is my baby robot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so YOLO is a robot that I created during my PhD. It's a small 12 centimeter height robot, and it's supposed to be a tool for children. I would even say that it's the new generation of a toy for children. And the robot does not have eyes or a mouth, and it has a very abstract shape that is intended, actually, because I prefer to work with non-humanoid robots, so robots that don't really resemble the human shape. And the way that children use this robot is during their storytelling. So a lot of the things that children do uh, is to just tell stories with the toys they have. So they would use YOLO as a character for the stories that they create too. And uh, the idea is for the robot, for YOLO, to be an animated character in their stories. So YOLO also gives ideas in their story. That makes a huge difference between a traditional toy, such as a teddy bear, to a robot toy, because um, the teddy bear just does what the child thinks it should do. And a robot could defy those ideas or could promote some ideas, which makes the story very rich, uh, because children have to combine the ideas they have for the robot with ideas the robot is giving them. And so there is a negotiation process. There is some improvisational process in the story. And maybe the story will be something that the child never imagined it to be. So they have to go outside of their um, mind to to play with with YOLO. And returning back to sociocultural theories, which, which Cindy and I regularly reference, the interaction between others, I mean, it's, it's well explored within within education research as well but the importance of having you know a mentor that you you can kind of interact with and engage you know in in even verbal discussions that allows you to expand your your breadth of knowledge to reposition your knowledge in response to their feedback and it's so exciting to kind of think about a robot companion that can support you in the design and development of a story and it immediately comes back to one of the things that's come up in past episodes and we've explored about the future creative this idea of learning how to collaborate with with artificial intelligence but in this case a a physical form of artificial intelligence and it's you know it's it's just in mind-boggling to think that we're, we're kind of already beginning to do that at, at such an, a young age. Could you speak a little bit to that concept of kind of like cobots collaborating with machines and how far away do you think we are from, from that actually becoming commonplace at home or, or in the classroom? 
The first thing I'd say, and, and I, I come from a robotics background, so I mostly have a lot of robotics examples to this. But again, going back to the basic concept of the robots, the robots fail all the time. <laughs> and that might come as a disappointment for a lot of people, but um, it's actually, they are very complex systems and they need human help to succeed. And so that collaboration, I'd say, comes from a place of need, but also from a place of, I, I, I would dare to say, desire. Do we really want a robot that is like doing their own thing super alone and we have no influence on it? Maybe not. We would rather be engaged with it, right? To make it a connection, to make it part of our lives in, in a more direct way. And so... I would say the magic formula is really to blend the needs for robots to uh, do things that they cannot do now because humans are better at, but also to make that as a desirable part of, of a robot. I think when we design a system, a machine, we cannot just look at the need. So I need that, right? So I design a machine for that, but we should design for our desires. How do I really want to interact with that machine? And I think that sometimes it's forgotten, <laughs> but I, I like to bring it in uh, to the context uh, of my work. For example, with YOLO, where I intentionally created robot, uh, the robot YOLO to only be able to give feedback to children if they were also interacting with it. So there, there is a connection, an interconnection between the two. My mind has just exploded. In the past, when we've spoken about this concept of cobots collaborating with artificial intelligence, collaborating with machines, I've always thought about still being a tool to support the creativity of the individual. And I remember in an episode with David Cropley, he said one of the, the, the things focused around the future creative is trying to identify what machines can do well and what humans can do better. But in your response, I suddenly realized that actually part of the relationship in the future is going to be helping the machines and artificial intelligence and robots to actually also learn what, what the humans might be able to do better. And it's, it's kind of crazy right now to think that they're also utilizing us as a tool so they can be more effective at doing what they need to do as well. I mean, that, Cindy, do you want to come in here? Like, am I way off base in, in, in being mind boggled here? No, I'm, I'm also mind boggled. My head is spinning. Could be, here's where my head is spinning. I'm thinking about the connection between the child and the robot. And I'm thinking about, say, something that schools are really struggling with right now, which is mental health. So how could a robot facilitate a child? Who's, who's struggling, who's got anxiety, what are the things they can do to support them? Like for me right now, it's sort of my mind is blown because I'm thinking about all the potential opportunities in terms of when an actual physical robot is making a connection with a human, what kind of impact can they have on the individual person? Um, so yes, I'm thinking both ways, but I'm, I'm really thinking about, you know, all of those times when you think, I wish there was an, another person in the room. Well, what if there's a robot in the room that's sort of facilitating something that's happening in the classroom? So what if like a, all right, let's just imagine possibilities here. You've got a, a teacher's aide who is a robot doing something for you. 
that makes teaching a lot easier to manage, right? So maybe it's grading papers. Maybe it can assess papers. Maybe it's sitting with a child and showing them playful ways to add up numbers. Maybe it's sitting and just listening to a child who's sort of upset about something and then gives it feedback on what should be done. I mean, it's, oh, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> well, well, no, but even even going back to, to our original question, the, is is actually the robot sitting down and actually trying to facilitate the creative thinking, which can often come from questioning and challenging and prompting the student to kind of like expand their thinking on a particular prompt. So, so maybe, maybe if you want to speak a little bit, I mean, I don't know, Patricia, we just thrown so much at you. So how about we don't ask you a question and we just stay quiet for a few minutes and see, see how you want to follow up. So I can speak um, a little bit about the mental health aspect and how also the YOLO uh, robot was questioning children. So in terms of YOLO, the way that the robot interacted with children in this storytelling context was was the following. So when children play with their toys, they are generally on the floor, they grab the toy and they move it around, right? So there is movement and the toy could be placed in another site, such as, oh, the toy is going to the school. So they place it somewhere else where they think the school is, even that's like part of their imagination. The concept for YOLO was exactly the same. They were moving it around. And what YOLO was doing was actually to record the movements of being grabbed and dragged somewhere. So say the child grabs YOLO and moves it around and says, YOLO is going to the school and puts it in place. YOLO could continue going to the school, so continue the movement that was recorded, or could do something completely different, such as run away from that place as fast as a robot could mechanically do. In that, in that moment, which is, for an outsider perspective, just seemed like the robot is doing a different movement, in the mind of the child who is creating the story, this was an interpretation of what the robot wants. So they could say things like, oh, someone is in the school that is bullying YOLO and YOLO is running away because he's afraid. So the story shifts, the storyline, um, different storylines emerge. And, and that is the part of questioning that YOLO was bringing into the stories. So instead of being a direct verbal question, it was a nonverbal question. It was just moving somewhere else. And this happens to us all the time. If someone does something unexpected to us nonverbally, we also question that, right? So I wanted to promote this uh, open-ended ways that children could interpret the movements of YOLO in their story as a way to critically thinking about their story and therefore fostering their creativity. I don't know if this was too confusing to convey without the actual robot. <laughs> no, no, no. And, it, and, it, and it addresses some of the, the things that Cindy was talking about in the classroom, how a robot might actually function in the classroom environment, how they might interact with the child in response to an assignment they've been given from the teacher. And, and going back to what I said, it it, it kind of like challenges you to th- really expand your thinking on how robots might actually participate in future learning. You know, I'm sitting here thinking it's primarily around analyzing data and, and making 
you know, better decisions from, from the data that helps us understand the child. But what you're doing through your work is talking about how it actually can facilitate and promote creative thinking. And quite often, we do talk about the constraint of time, how difficult it is for teachers and to a certain extent, parents to question and challenge our children during learning experiences in a way that kind of like promotes creative thinking within an assignment. So the idea that actually we could have a robot support us in doing that is is really exciting. In fact, that's that's less mind boggling and just in, it, it's insightful and incredibly exciting. So thank you so much for sharing that. So Patricia, I'd love for you to go back to this mental health piece and how you see robots helping with children in mental health. Sure. So something I want to start with is I am never trying to create a robot to substitute a psychologist, a mom, a dad, or a teacher that could help with that. With that. All I'm saying is sometimes children need support and the support system maybe is unavailable. So in those times, what could a robot do? So I am bringing in robots as a new tool for mental health rather than substituting existing systems and people. And during my postdoc here at the University of Washington, I really went deep into mental health and I was so happy to do that because that tied back with my undergrad uh, studies in psychology. And what we were trying to do, and this was more on the teenager population, uh, was to bring a robot to school to support we called it micro-interventions. So the robot would deliver micro-interventions to children, which are very short interventions that have the potential of an immediate positive outcome. So what the robot was doing uh, was to just be sitting there and then teenagers would go to the robot and had the opportunity to either vent out their emotions or engage in a more structured micro-intervention delivered by the robot. So those interventions, we... We did not just create them out of nowhere. We looked at uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, including ACT and DBT, to make the robot uh, intervene in a more principled way. So we engaged with uh, psychologists to design these interventions with us for the robots. And that is super important because we are talking about the very delicate topic, which is mental health. So... When we actually brought in teenagers to test this idea, we just discovered a whole lot of problems, which is what I love, problems. But they were like, oh, no, if I'm a cool kid, I don't want to go and talk with a robot about my mental health, right? <laughs> so problem number one, uh, this needs to look cool. Um, and so we're trying to uh, understand where in the school a robot could be so that anyone that goes to the robot goes in a natural way. For example, the robot could be placed near a bathroom or near the cafeteria so that people would know, oh, he went there because he talked to the robot. He's not feeling good or something. It could be just that he went to grab a croissant. So we were trying to explore context. And that that's actually a, a big keyword for robotics, which is anything they can do, even if they're doing at their best, it needs to be context smart. It needs to be very uh, mindful of how people act and how they already behave in their natural contexts to succeed. Um, so that was one of the things we, we did. It's interesting because you said that 
you know, teenagers were worried about talking to robot, but I would think they would be more open because they're not being judged by anyone. So in terms of an initial assessment of someone's mental health or just even trying to start having a conversation, talking to a robot might be less, I would think it would be less intimidating because you're not, no one's giving you feedback that's going to make you feel bad or who's going to judge you or tell your secrets or something like that. You know, so did you find any data that supports the opposite viewpoint? Absolutely. We discovered a huge potential, especially because teenagers right now, they grew up with technologies all around them. They are so intimately connected to them that literally they are part of their lives and the interactions they have around them with their even friends. So they they very easily understood non-judgmental space of the robot. They liked it a lot. In the case of our study, we decided not to record what children actually said to the robot because of privacy and ethical purposes, but we did record how long they were talking to the robots. And then we asked them, did you feel the robot was not smart enough when giving you support because it was not really understanding every word you said? And they they did not have a problem with that. They liked it because they felt it's it's good. It gave me support. I also have to mention this was a short-term study. So maybe if it was a long-term study, they would like the robot to know more about them. And that that brings other questions into place. But but it is working. They do like the robot as a safe space for them. And they also approach this safe space in very different ways. So while boys were going uh, more on their own, Girls would go in pairs with their best friends, for example, to talk about an issue they had. And this is how they considered it private. So for them, even going in small group was private, uh, which, which again brings, brings other questions we were not expecting. What does it mean to be private space? What does it mean to, you know, go and talk with a robot alone if that's not the exact thing that they wanted? You know what's also I'm, I'm curious about is, is how this might change over time. I look at the way my young boys interact with virtual assistants such as Siri and Alexa and Cortana and they do seem to have a relationship with them. I, you know, I can tell you that my eldest is very fond of Siri and if you were to suggest that Alexa is better than Siri, he gets offended because Siri is, is the virtual assistant that he's interacted with for the longest and the most. And it, it's, it, it's curious to me to know how when they become teenagers, you might see a slight change in the comfort of interacting with robots. Whereas the current teenagers, I, I think, wouldn't have grown up with virtual assistants off the top of my head. So, Absolutely. I think that's a very interesting point. And Going back to education, I feel like we should really have an educational part in schools, which is just this mystifying technology, right? All about educating what is Alexa, how does it work, what does it recognize of what you say, how does it bring back to you what they interpreted, and, and the same with robots. Because um, how can a small child actually distinguish between a robot that is acting so so uh, intelligently to them, to maybe a dog or even, you know, other people. So I think there needs to be an education about this because these are different things. A robot is a machine 
it's not a living thing, at least for me. <laughs> Some people in other cultures think about this differently too. But Well, listen, I, I do need to share a story to that. Uh, and, and I don't want to end the show on, on a kind of like panic note. But my eldest did first go to Siri and ask Siri where babies come from. So he wasn't satisfied with our first answer. So he, he, he went to Siri. So, you know, that in itself, I think, speaks to what you're talking about, Patricia. We are going to have to uh, think about how we as parents and educators are going to utilize and interact with robots and determine how they're going to participate in our children's learning. I think that's super important. Before we head to our last question, I want to tie it back to the first episode we had of our Double Espresso, and I want to sort of put a ribbon on this. So I want to talk about the future. What type of technological experiences do you see as being the most effective when it comes to promoting creative skills in young children? Anything that combines this combo of playfulness, engagement, and challenge. So challenging a little bit where they are, but also being able to engage them, which with robots, for example, it's very easy because it's an interaction that is made, right? It's not a piece of paper where I have an exercise, like I did my my review paper on that. And there was a lot of interventions just like in a piece of paper, like torrents or others. But a robot can actually interact with you in multiple ways and engage you in that creative process. And then the the part of playfulness, just going back to how children normally communicate with the world and how they learn is a lot about play, is trial and error, is this mindset of they're not really judging anything. They are just discovering how things work. And I think a system or a training that promotes this is very important And then finding ways to be able to analyze all of that complexity and see (laughs) if it works or not. That is our job to do, Uh, but it should not be in the activity so much. It should not be so heavily there. So Patricia, we finish every one of our episodes by asking our guests to provide us with three tips that educators can kind of uh, take away with them. And, you know, sometimes these tips are items that they can immediately act in the classroom or other times they're just things to kind of think about and reflect on. So what three tips would you have for educators, particularly in regard to what you've shared with us on these uh, Double Espresso? So I'd say uh, just uh, triggering your inner child so making it making it be an important mindset for you to be playful, to be curious, to explore. Don't say no immediately. Say no as like maybe the second or third thing you have to say <laughs> when you interact with a child, just for a given a given time uh, and see what happens. Keeping it basic and simple. So I, I was mentioning before that, you know, sticks and stones can be huge in promoting creativity and triggering imagination. So uh, we don't need much. We just need maybe the right space and the right time to do things. Focusing more on these processes of what emerges and being open to them. And also just not putting everything on you. Um, There are just so many people that children interact with. There's their families, even strangers in the street, sometimes even animals, pets, and uh, of course, teachers that can help promote creativity. So I would say really leverage on that 
connection to the community and to the families to be able to every day do something different with, with them. I think that's so important. It's a game changer. Well, thank you so much. I know Matt and I are in complete awe of the work that you're doing, and we hope that you'll stay in touch and keep us posted on all the exciting things that you're doing in your work, Patricia. So if you've enjoyed this Double Espresso episode, we encourage you to go and share it with a friend, particularly a friend who might be interested in technology or robotics. And don't forget, if you've got any questions about this episode or past or future episodes, you can reach out to Cindy and I using the email address questions at fuelingcreativitypodcast.com. My name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This podcast was produced by Creativity and Education and in partnership with dadsforcreativity.com. Our editor is Sina Yousafzadeh.